Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is Ion Veterans Weekend a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the U.S. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Eye on Veterans. Eye on Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, our first guest on Ion Veterans has had millions of eyes on his video where he can be seen standing at a protest in Portland, Oregon, completely still and utterly passive, while federal law enforcement authorities in full riot gear beat him with batons and sprayed him with pepper spray. He's a Navy veteran. He attended the Naval Academy and represented the midshipmen on the wrestling mat, which means we have two things in common, a love for the U.S. Navy and high school wrestling. Chris David, thank you for joining me on CBSI and Veterans. It's an honor to be here. Let's talk. Uh, the video, of course, shot near a courthouse somewhere, I'm assuming, in downtown Portland, Oregon, and the protests appeared to have turned into a riot. Tons of shouting, and there you are standing solid as a rock. Walk me through kind of the interview you've given a hundred times now. Walk me through what happened that night. Well, you know, I think it's pretty clear that I had some health issues. I'm not exactly the healthiest person in the world at 53. But, so I knew about the protests, but I didn't want to catch COVID because, you know, that kind of thing could kill me considering, you know, my lungs. So I didn't go until last Saturday night, and it's because I had been watching videos of men in camouflage uniforms and no insignia or markings or identifying information abducting U.S. citizens from the streets of Portland and stuffing them into minivans and driving away. And that made me angry for a couple reasons. One, I think it's unconstitutional. Two, um, if they can get away with that, then any other group can just dress up in camouflage and abduct people off the street. So it's sort of a slippery slope. If the feds are doing that, how do we know that whatever group looks like them isn't the feds? So I was very concerned about that, right? Um, 
and it really just enraged me at some point. And I, uh, I was going to go around Friday night and I didn't, and I missed some spectacular fun that night, but I went down Saturday night instead. I, uh, hopped on the bus, got down to the uh, protest area and, uh, got there probably around eight fifteen, And I spent the first hour, uh, watching, uh, the, uh, Oregon health science university emergency room docs talk about their experience of treating these protesters with broken bones and smashed faces and scorched lungs. And uh, so I spent an hour doing that, and then I decided to take around a walk around the area to see how big the protest was, because the way it had been portrayed in the media, the whole town was aflame. So what I did was I walked around the entire area where the protests had been occurring, and it, it, it is the equivalent of four square city blocks. That's how big all of this is. It's an entirely tiny little piece of Portland. Hmm. I was stunned to realize, because I hadn't been down since the, the uh, protests began. But when I walked around the area, it's confined to four square city blocks. That's the, all, that's the only part of Portland that's being affected by any of this. Wow. Now, what was going on that you saw, though? Because, I mean, what we see on the television, what we see on the network news, um, you know, graffiti, I see protesters running in all yeah, directions. Yeah. Things have been smashed. Things are boarded up. And it appears yeah. to be, uh, you know, it appears to be a damn riot. It's one building, basically. Literally one building that's boarded up. And mm. it's the federal courthouse. And so before they started putting in these giant uh, interlinked uh, fences, they got a lot of graffiti, right? And so all right. the graffiti that you see on the building was done a long time ago. So I got there, and after I walked around at around 10.15, right, I sat down on, in, on, in the park right across from the courthouse, not too far from the street, maybe 10, 15 feet, and I just leaned against the tree and watched what was going on. So what I watched was there was, uh, if you want to hear the whole story. Oh, yeah. They started to disassemble or trying to disassemble the fence around the courthouse. And they managed to remove one chunk out of it. And then uh, an African-American man who is a Marine veteran with an American flag was standing in the middle of that, exhorting them not to do this. Please don't go in there. This is counterproductive, right? Hmm. And uh, so he was exhorting them, and he managed to stop them from going in just by, you know, exhorting them right in that little uh, that little open section. But then the the guys who wanted to get in, they managed to open up another section. And so the other guy gave up because they got in. They eventually disassembled all of the fencing and piled it up against the, the courthouse entrances, which are now completely boarded up uh, with uh, plywood. And uh, so they did all of that. And yeah, there were a few people here and there. And it really got boring after that. After they disassembled the fencing, which was a small number of people who did this, by the way, uh, most of the rest of the protesting was completely in the street, off of federal property. And uh, it got to about 1045, and I was just getting bored because I'd only come down there because I wanted to ask the federal officers. And in this case, it turns out it's, I, we think it's the U.S. Marshals, uh, but we can't be 100% sure. So at about 10.45, I was thinking about going home, and then all of a sudden, all of, you know, about 8 to 10 to 12 uh, U.S. Marshals came barreling out of the building and plow into the protesters in the intersection and start knocking them down and hitting them with clubs and, and uh, tear gassing them or uh, pepper spraying them. So what happened was when I saw that, I walked out of the park and into the street and stood 
uh, right by the federal building where you see me in the video, and I'm standing about three or four feet from the curb. I'm not on federal property. I'm just standing there waiting for them to come up and uh, close enough for me to ask a question. And the irony behind all of that is there was another Naval Academy grad from class of 2001 who was standing right next to me. We didn't know anything about each other, and he was yelling the same question. He was yelling, I'm a vet. Why are you not following your oath to the Constitution? Which is exactly what I was yelling at the same time. And they said nothing back. They did not respond at all. They looked very amped up. Um, I was hoping that wearing all my Navy gear, there was maybe a few veterans in that group, so it would give them pause, and maybe we could talk, and I could ask my question. They were not interested in that at all. Hmm. I was standing there pretty much mostly alone for a little while, and then all of the uh, U.S. Marshals started to surround me, and that's when we started asking the question, why are you not following your oath to the Constitution? They said nothing, and then one of them pointed his weapon briefly at my chest. He was standing about three feet away. I don't know what type of weapon it was. It was a semi-automatic weapon. And, uh, and then he lowered it, and then another uh, U.S. Marshal barreled into me and knocked me back a couple feet. Right. And that's where we can see that on the video, yeah. Right. And then I plant myself, and I relax myself, because I know they're going to beat me, and it hurts a lot less if you're relaxed. And that's what they did. They beat me. Yeah. Uh, the guy on my left hit me three times with his baton, and then I got blasted square in the face with pepper spray. Um, and then I started to turn to my right, and there was another guy with a baton there, and he broke my hand with a baton swing and they blasted me in the face with pepper spray. Again, another guy uh, hit, hit me with pepper spray, a different, different person. And as I'm turned, I turn all the way around and I'm starting to walk off. And that guy who broke my hand, he gives me a really good whack on the back with his baton as I'm walking away. Of course, when I gave them a rather rude gesture and then walked through the park, uh, as I turned around to walk through the park, I walked through this giant cloud of tear gas, uh, and I was completely disoriented. I took two shots of pepper spray to my face, and now I'm walking through tear gas. I got really disoriented. Um, I walked to this far corner of the park and just sort of collapsed on a park bench. And, uh, and then this young uh, street medic came up and asked me if I needed help. And I just said, they beat me with batons, they broke my hand, and they sprayed pepper spray in my face. And at that point, the uh, street medic then tried to evacuate me and treat me, but then that area got overrun. So we had to pull further down the street and we continued with my treatment. And then the uh, street medic evacuated me to a parking garage where they were able to transport me out of the area and find an ambulance. At which point I was transported to the VA hospital, which is rather interesting because that's where I work. Wow. Now, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Navy veteran Chris David, including why did he think it was a good idea to go there in the first place, and the things he thinks all Americans should do to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, we'll get back to our interview with Navy veteran Chris David. The video of him being beaten with batons and pepper sprayed by federal law enforcement agents dressed in camouflage has been viewed by millions. But rather than just hear about the beating, which broke his hand, I wanted to know more about why. 
Why did he feel the need to go to the protest to confront law enforcement officers and ask the question that he shared with us in our previous segment? I'm a vet. Why are you not following your oath to the Constitution? Which is exactly what I was yelling. Just, um, you know, me reading what I see. But the U.S. Marshals had said that, uh, you know, you approached them and that you failed to comply with lawful commands to leave the area. Is there any way they could have mistook you for the people that were tearing down the fences? What was that? Is there any way they could have mistaken you for being some of the people that were tearing down the fences and that were trying well, to... considering I'm wearing a Navy, Naval Academy sweatshirt and a Navy wrestling hat and a backpack, full, you know, covered with Navy patches, I would, and I'm 53 years old, mm-hmm. um, do, does that sound like the kind of guy that was tearing down the fences? I think it was pretty obvious that I wasn't. Um, did it seem as though that would be the ideal place to have that conversation? Think no, anybody needs to get beat. There was no it. other place where I was going to be able to go and try to talk to these federal officers. There was no other place. And I didn't want to call and say, Hey, what's going on and get some PAO flunky yeah, telling yeah. me something that's BS. I actually wanted to talk to the guys in the line and see if they would pause just a little bit for a veteran so I could ask them this question. So, yeah, I wanted to talk to these U.S. Marshals that were beating people up face-to-face. And the only opportunity I would have had was to go down there and do it. Is there any part of you that maybe regrets or thinks like, hey, maybe these guys were just, I mean, they were in the moment. There were people around you that were doing some violent things, yes? So isn't it plausible that they just didn't have the time to sit down with you and have you know, a fair conversation. Maybe they, that were, wasn't... they had no intention of a fair conversation. They came right out of the building and indiscriminately attacked people. It was completely indiscriminate. Plus, there was no tactical cohesion to anything they were doing. They were in camis with no market, without well, uh, any insignia or identifying information. They're all carrying semi-automatic weapons, pepper spray, and nightsticks and big batons. And they just went into pure attack mode. I was never on federal property. I was very, I was standing stock still. And what angered them was that I wouldn't go away, that I was just standing there. They were thugs with sticks. Hmm. I've heard you quoted in another interview where you said that uh, you felt as though their presence there, the very presence of the federal law enforcement people was there to precipitate violence, protests, and chaos in order to achieve a certain type of optic that appeals to a segment of the population. So are you putting, are you putting the onus on all this 50 some days of protests and all the things that have gone on now with the law enforcement's reaction? Are you putting that all on law enforcement saying that they are just there to create the violence? What the feds are doing every night is attacking aggressively. I don't know if you saw the video from last night, but there was a um, wall of moms all interlinked around the federal building. They were not on federal property. The U.S. Marshals tear gassed them, pepper sprayed them, and clubbed them with batons. These are moms. They beat them. They'll beat down women. They'll beat down moms. They don't care. They saw me as a target completely. I was not a human being to them at all. And if somebody's going to whack you on the back with a baton as you're walking away, that's not tactics. That's retribution. What about those that say, look, (laughs) there's already violence going on down there. There's already protests. There's already anger. There's already friction in the streets. They're ripping down fences. I mean, what about those that just say, look, moms, stay home. 
I mean, I don't want my mom going down there. You know, I I don't want you getting hurt as my fellow veteran by just standing in the street like that. Why didn't you just go home? Because that's where it's the most important to go if you're going to make a stand. It's easy to make a stand when it's comfortable. Where it matters, where it counts, is where it's risky. Mm. Uh, let's get to that, because uh, this is where... You- a lot of the major networks cut you off or they end the interview. You know, they, they get the right. hot sound bite about the violence. They get the hot sound bite about the protests and you were beat on and boom, thank you for your time. You always yep. end the interviews with saying, look, you don't want it to be about this video. You don't want it to be about you. You want it to be about the original reason that the protests right. got started. And that is why you think it's important to go make a stand. Uh, my question exactly. to you is after we make stands, after the cardboard has been held up, after the chants have been chanted, after the violence has happened and the graffiti has been put down, what do you feel as an American and, and, and with respect to your veteran status, what do you feel as a veteran should be done? Where, where is this first step we can take? Because at some point in time, Chris, we got to stop just holding up signs. We have no control over what the feds do at all. The only thing we have control over is what we do, which is, If the feds are going to behave that way, then every night there's just going to be more and more people there. But is there something we could do to help racial justice? That's what I'm saying. What do you think is a good first step in America to do something about racial inequality? The essence of the Black Lives Matter movement. It has to be legislation. We've got we've we have systemic racism across this country in police departments everywhere. And it's a chronic problem, and it, and it pops up everywhere. There's no place, probably all, very few places, that can claim that they don't have this problem. We have systemic racism in our policing in this country. We need legislation. We need commitment from the Department of Justice for oversight of these police departments, which we don't have anymore. This administration eliminated, essentially, the oversight of police departments. So there are a lot of things that we can do with the Department of Justice. There's a lot of things we can do with legislation, I think, that would address this issue. That's the only thing we can do. That's the only step we can take that will be meaningful, other than protesting and raising the visibility of the issue. We have to keep saying Black Lives Matter. This is about discrimination against people of color. Is that something done by the federal government or is that third party DOJ has been doing that for years up until this administration, you know, DOJ negotiates consent decrees with what well, they used to negotiate consent decrees with police departments all the time that needed some kind of corrective action. That was a function that, that, that existed within the department of justice until three and a half years ago. Yeah, but I mean, this problem's way older than three and a half years. I mean, we had racial injustice, uh, you know, in the previous administration. We had this going back for decades. We did, but I don't think we had the political will to truly address it until the murder of George Floyd. That galvanized and made the Black Lives Matter movement mainstream. Portland is a very white city, by the way. And the vast, vast majority of the BLM protesters are white. Not going to argue that. Not going to argue that at all. Yeah, you can see that in the videos. Um, But what I really want to hear from you is, like, what do you think we should be doing? I get it. Legislation, government, laws. I mean, none of that I can do. I mean, I can't pull any of that off. What can we do to fight racial injustice other than holding up signs, yelling, and spray painting buildings? Keep your camera phones out. Document what the police are doing. That's the best way to deal with this for now. 
You see something you think is wrong with an interaction with a with a law enforcement offer, officer, film it. That's my recommendation. Mm. And as someone that has experienced this, is it within you to see that there are sometimes situations where law enforcement needs help because they are trying to do the right thing? Yes, we assume that most of the time law enforcement officers are doing the right thing, right? We hope they are. But I don't want to get into this, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, both siderism kind of thing, because obviously police officers need support, but they also need to be retrained. A lot of these police departments need to be reorganized. They have systemic flaws in their organizations, allowing these uh, racial problems to perpetuate. The biggest one being is that bad cops are never punished. They get away with it every time or almost every time. That's an issue that needs to be addressed. We need to have a national registry for cops so that when a bad cop is thrown off one police force, he just didn't go to another one and get a new job there. So we need a national registry. That's an issue that we can use. I want to thank Chris David for coming on Ion Veterans and sharing his perspective. And uh, if you'd like to share with the street medics that gave him the medical attention, you can find an account on GoFundMe entitled Captain Portland's Fundraiser for Street Medics. And you can see and read more about this interview at ConnectingVets.com. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And uh, our next guest is a fascinating study in uh, what you can do when you put your mind to it and necessity being the mother of all inventions. It starts with his time on the U.S. Navy SEAL teams. And no, he's not an author, but he is uh, the CEO of Zero Eyes. Mike Lahiff joins us on the show right now. Mike, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Phil. Indeed. And I point out you're not an author because somebody the other day was busting my chops saying, you know, how come all the Spec Ops guys you have have books? Uh, I know. It's, it's, pretty br- <laughs> it's pretty brutal. Well, it's great because you guys have such great stories. And you guys are drawn to run towards the fire, even once you become a veteran, even once you leave the service. And that's kind of where we pick up with your company and this particular invention here with Zero Eyes. Before we get into the company, specifically how it is artificial intelligence and security monitoring on a whole new level, uh, share with me a little bit about what you did do in the military. Yeah, shortly after 9-11, I, um, I was in college at the time, but I was, wasn't going anywhere pretty quickly. And you know, I grew up playing in the woods. I, uh, I always had a fascination for the military when I was growing up. My, my father wasn't in the military, but uh, you know, I went hunting and we went camping all the time. And after 9-11 happened, SD, that was planned when I was a kid. It was just, it was time to go. I dropped out of college and listed Navy. I spent some time in a regular Navy in the fleet on a, well, on a Kitty Hawk, as we were talking about a little bit earlier. And then, <laughs> Oh yeah. The Kitty Hawk what? with its funny nickname, which we won't say on the radio, but it, <laughs> it rhymes with Kitty. Yep. Um, and then I ended up at Bud's and went to the SEAL teams and I, I was in the Navy for a little over 10 years and, uh, and it was time for a career change because uh, I was just never home. I'm, I'm married with four kids and I wanted to spend more time with my wife and children. And so I left active duty and moved back to Philadelphia and, um, to get my master's. 
Where did you serve? Uh, what deployments, if I can ask? I know a lot of what the SEAL teams do and everything isn't, you know, for open disclosure. But uh, what team were you with and uh, what kind of fun and exotic and exotic places did you get to go visit? Yeah, um, I was at SEAL Team 4 in Virginia Beach. And then all my time, my deployments were both in Afghanistan, all up and down the eastern side of Afghanistan. In between deployments with, we would go to over, I went over to Europe and went to a couple different countries. Just, just for training with partner forces. Nice. And uh, know it well, Little Creek. Spent some time down there. I was uh, also stationed in Norfolk Naval, so I lived in Virginia Beach. And um, do you have any favorite bars you went to in Virginia Beach? Did you go to Worrell Brothers? Was that still up and running when you were in? No. I, you know, I a lot of guys, like I said, I was married with kids. And since we're, whenever I was home, I was, I was home. Like, I wasn't trying to go out or anything like that. Um, a lot of guys would go to Chicks. That was right there in Little Creek. Still oh, there. Yeah, yeah. I'd pop over there, like, especially, you know, that was kind of the spot we went to when, when we lost a teammate, and everyone would go there and have a beer and a shot. Um, and then, but I didn't go out much when I was down there. Well, I did enough for both of us. I was not married, and I was, uh, sing- <laughs> I was single, and I was a crazy E4. So uh, I did some damage, and uh, it took its toll. I would have fared much better had I been married. But, uh, like a true sailor. Yeah, exactly. It just <laughs> was the epitome of an idiot. That's for sure. Well, we both got out and we both kind of pursued our lives as veterans. And uh, you had an interesting situation go down about the time of the Parkland mass shooting. And uh, talk to me about that, because that kind of takes us to your company. Yeah. So at the time I was working a job and I, I was interested in some folks that were doing different AI stuff around, mainly around facial recognition. And I was like, oh, that's cool, but didn't really see, see the business case at the time. I was, me and a couple of the other co-founders, we'd get around over, over a drink or just coffee and just talk about uh, different businesses that we could do. But we always kept coming back to the active shooter. Like, we wanted to do something to solve something where we had passion behind it. And the active shooter thing, it's just every time it shows up on the news, it makes my stomach turn. Mm. Um, Parkland happened. And they started doing lockdown drills, active shooter drills. At, at it's pretty common in schools now, which is very disturbing. Uh, it's just the time we live in. And then my daughter came home the one day and was pretty upset about it. And uh, it kind of fast forward a couple of days. I'm at her school for lacrosse practice, and I'm looking around. There's cameras everywhere, and you see a security guard walking around. I'm like, what are the cameras for? Who's looking at them? Well, no one's looking at them. They're only there for after the fact. And it was kind of, I was like, wait a second. If we get, if people can use cameras for facial recognition and this other object recognition, why let's use it to detect weapons and send alerts to police to help uh, decrease response times, increase situational awareness. Uh, so now they know what the shooter looks like, what type of gun they have, where they're last located, or ideally just stop it before it even happens. Um, and so Zero Eyes was born. And I feel you on that because when we do look at the active shooter situations, um, man, it is heartbreaking news. It is hard to watch, hard to look at, hard to know the hard data behind it, how many times it's happened in this country and it shouldn't be happening, but it has to strike a deeper chord with you because you've been in active shooter scenarios. You've, you've, you've seen war. Um, is there any kind of similarity between the school shootings or these sort of public shootings and things you draw from, from your military experience? 
Yeah, I, I try to put myself in the shoes of of those first responders that 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 are get that call over the radio from nine one one, a active shooter, and you, you think about how that relates to military operations. It's it's not the same, but it crosses the same world. When we're going on a mission, I, we train so much, so it really helps like relieve that that pressure or the stress going into it. Like you have that calm moment. But we also got that through years of training, and then we also got it because we had good intelligence. We knew who we were going after, how many bad guys we expected to be on target, what type of weapons they would typically have. But police don't have that when they're responding to one of these. It's just on a whim. They have no idea what they're walking into. And that's got to, you know, you get that pucker factor. Uh, and that's going to freeze you w- when you're responding. So if we could give them more information so now they know what the shooter looks like, do they have an assault rifle or is it a pistol? Because that does make a difference. Uh, how many shooters there are, because some, some many scenarios there's two shooters. Most of the time it's one. And then where were they last located? Because when they get that call over the radio and they're showing up, like, hey, there's an active shooter at the whatever local high school or place of business, it could be a 50-acre campus with multiple buildings. They have no idea which one to show up to. Um, and so now we can really drive them in and pinpoint that location. Let's get into the specifics about how Zero Eyes works. Uh, We've kind of laid it out sort of vaguely here. You know, you noticed there were security cameras around the schools and things where your daughters were attending, and and, and never were they linked to anything that was actively and almost proactively observing what's going on. How does Zero Eyes work? You mentioned artificial intelligence and security cameras. Yeah. We have, um, I'm going to simplify a lot of this, but the... I call it the PlayStation model. So we have the camera. The camera, there's cameras everywhere. You can walk down any street in any city, you're going to see hundreds, thousands of them. Uh, they're in all schools, the or most schools. And then, but they're they're only good for after the fact. Like someone broke into a locker, there was a crime, uh, a computer was stolen. They go back and look at the tape. But now, now we pull those camera feeds and we run them through our, our quote-unquote PlayStation, which is a server which could be on location at the client site or we could host it in the cloud. And then inside that server runs our software platform and our AI model that is the game that goes inside of it. We could take that AI model out and change it with another one easily, but ours focuses on detecting guns. Um, so when those, those camera feeds are pulled into that box, we're running that model over the frames. So a video frame or a video feed, all that it is is a bunch of frames stitched together to make a movie uh, and that comes in and we just look at every frame saying gun or no gun. And if it sees a gun, it spits out an alert. Wow. Stitching together the thousands of pictures in a row that create a video. Correct. Mm-hmm. And then correct. it's looking in each frame for the presence of a weapon. Now, when we return, we'll talk more about zero eyes, the artificial intelligence driven security camera system and just how accurate it really is. The way this system communicates with schools and law enforcement. And this Navy SEAL's thoughts on ways to reduce mass shootings in America. Because it's bad. In 2019, the number of mass shootings outpaced the number of days in a year, which is insane. And it's been getting worse year over year ever since Columbine. That's all ahead on CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and we'll continue talking with another Navy veteran, Mike Lahiff, 
a former Navy SEAL and now CEO of a company called Zero Eyes. And it's dedicated to combining artificial intelligence with security camera video in order to recognize weapons. It's a combination that should give us all hope in a world where mass shootings are becoming more and more common. Can it find them? Say if a kid is showing another kid his squirt gun in a backpack, does it, and there's a camera in that hallway, will it immediately register and then notify someone that there's the potential for a weapon in hallway six, the East wing of, you know, XYZ junior high? Yeah, it, it depends on multiple variables. The, the, the way we always sum it up, the folks here at Zero Eyes, is if you were looking, if a human was sitting down looking at that camera feed on a, a screen and they could see the weapon and say, yes, that's a gun, then our, our computer vision model will also detect it um, in its simplest form. So we do not pick up concealed weapons. It could be partially concealed. But and then people say, well, how much? 50%, 40%? And again, it depends. It depends on the type of gun. Uh, a pistol is a little bit different than a rifle because of the size of the object. Because it's, it's boiled down to pixels, but I don't, don't want to get all too far down the rabbit hole. No, right on. The, right on. Um, so the bigger the weapon, easier to detect. And then it comes into distance and lighting, uh, the type of camera, how high it is, the angle, the field of view of the lens and stuff. Mm. Now... Myself, I'm a parent, I have kids in school, and I can say without a doubt now that at least some of the cameras are situated in ideal locations. Every entrance has eyes on it from some sort of camera at every school. And to some degrees, even there are schools out there, and I venture to guess the majority of them have the thing where you have to kind of buzz yourself in now. You stand, you have to look at a camera, hit the, you know, hit the button, and somebody must let you into the school. So given that, if you were to see somebody or if the camera were to register somebody coming towards the school with a weapon in their hand, any number of these cameras would find that. And then would it immediately call a person at some central control, like an alarm system works, or would it call the school? We send alerts by mobile or mobile app and desktop notification. So if they have a security resource officer or if the principal has a desktop piece up in their office, it would notify them that way. It also notifies via our app. Um, and then we have a partnership with a company, and we have an integration to 911. They hit, so it goes right to a local piece app uh, if the client wants it to do it that way. Wow, amazing. So 911, desktop, mobile. So God forbid any weapon get drawn and uh, you know a shooter heads toward a school on multiple layers. This could be this information could be dispatched. And getting back to your SEAL team experience allow law enforcement to show up with a little bit more knowledge about what's going on on site. Absolutely. And it, it, could, it could really change the timeline of response, which, you know, every second matters. And that's what we tell people all the time. And you'll hear that a lot, in, you know, the active shooter security space. Very cool. Where are you now with zero eyes? How many schools, how many States, how many, like how many activations do we have nationwide? Yeah. So we have uh, approximately 700 cameras. Uh, through customers uh, that we're putting onto the platform. We're adding more every day. It's a, it's a mix between commercial and, and schools, K through 12. Right now we're in five schools, but we're doing quite a bit over this summer uh, while there isn't 
obviously with the COVID hitting, but with um, schools coming back online in fall, we're, we're pretty busy this summer with installing it more. So we had 30 more schools sign up recently. And then the, really the commercial side with corporate campuses, people are worried about disgruntled employees coming back and, and just the current environment in the United States has a lot of people on, on edge. First it was COVID and then a lot that's happened in the last couple of weeks. And then, I mean, gun stores, some gun stores are sold out in the United States of guns, which is crazy. Um, and so it's been really picking up. What's your vision for the future now? What do you want Zero Eyes to do? do you, would you like this installed at all shopping malls? Would you like to see it? I mean, not just because you want your business to grow, but I mean, as we look at gun control, as we look at trying to eliminate mass shootings, um, where does Zero Eyes play into that? And what's your vision for America for the future with respect to mass shootings? Our, our vision for Zero Eyes, we had... Some people in the United States grew up in the Cold War era, and there was, like, nuclear fallout shelter drills. I grew up with fire alarm drills. Now our children are growing up with active shooter lockdown drills. I really see weapon detection over security cameras being federally mandated, like fire alarms for building code, in the next five years. Um, And we want to set the industry benchmark for that. And so when people ask, what do we do about mass shootings, we want the response to be zero-wise. Uh, you could you could literally outlaw all guns today, but good luck getting them getting them off the street. Um, there's over 400 million guns in the United States. That's you're not going to that's not going to happen anytime soon. So we have to find all, other solutions out there to, to hit this like now because um, it's bad. In 2019, the number of mass shootings outpaced the number of days in a year, which is insane. And it's been getting worse year over year ever since Columbine in 1999. Yeah. And that's a fascinating kind of snapshot at your viewpoint there, because we have often looked at limiting gun ownership or restricting gun access as the choke point to stop mass shootings. And yours is more like open up the intelligence gathering aspect so we can stop it through technology, not through limited gun ownership. Yeah, there's there's not one, not just there's not going to be a magic cure for this. It's not going to be one thing. Good security comes in layers. It, it, it ties into aspects of mental health, gun laws, uh, good security, and and just engaging with people on a human level where they're like, hey, is there something bothering you? And trying to stop something before it festers and manifests into an active shooter scenario. Very good. Where do I learn more about Zero Eyes? Uh, you can visit zeroeyes.com. Uh, go on to our website, and if you want to reach out to us, or yeah, we have forms on there that, that you can reach out to us, and happy to chat. And that's Z-E-R-O-E-Y-E-S, correct? Yes, sir. Right on. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck with this uh, with this company, and uh, just love what you're doing to make a positive difference uh, in the lives of everyone, and uh, certainly focusing on schools. And anything we can do to stop mass shootings, I know, is a great step in the right direction. Uh, the company is Zero Eyes, and Mike Lahiff, founder and uh, former U.S. Navy SEAL, man. Appreciate everything you're doing, buddy. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. And I want to thank all of our guests today including Chris David, who earlier this hour shared the story behind the viral video of law enforcement officers beating him during a violent protest in Portland. You can find the full-length version of this show, as well as articles about many others, on ConnectingVets.com. 
You can also hear incredible podcasts everywhere you get podcasts by searching for titles like Vet Story, The Back Brief, and Connecting Vets. And you can follow me on Twitter at PhilBriggsVet. Until next time, I'll be looking for more great stories from our military veterans and bring them right here to you on CBS Eye on Veterans. Eye on Veterans Weekend has been presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. Choose from 90-plus programs and specializations to accelerate your military or civilian career and find out how our dedicated military and veteran advisors can help you navigate your benefits to save you time and money. University of Maryland Global Campus. Find out how we're made for you. Visit umgc.edu. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.